Uh, so today we have the privilege of hearing a message from uh, one of my good friends, mentor, uh, father in the Lord, uh, Matt Woodley, who's a pastor at Resurrection Anglican down in uh, Wheaton, Illinois. Um, I'm so glad that we get to hear from you this morning. Can I pray for you? Yeah, the, the most important thing, though, is, well, not the most important thing, but I'm from Minnesota. Oh, so, right. With high school Edina, St. John's University. Is your mic on? North, University of Minnesota. Is your mic on? Oh, um, yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, so I live, I spent the first 40 years of my life here, um, and uh, so it's always great to be back in Minneapolis. Yeah, well, it's good to have you. Uh, Lord Jesus, we, we thank you, Lord, for um, just our, our broader yeah. family of yeah. churches, and I pray, God, that you would use your servant, Matt, mm -hmm. today to speak to us. Um, may you open our hearts that we might hear from yeah. you. It's thank in your you. name we pray these things. Amen. Amen, and you may be seated. So about three weeks ago on a Tuesday morning at 7 a.m., I was sitting on my front porch in uh, East Aurora, Illinois, um, a sort of lower-than-middle-income community, and sometimes we get some very interesting people in our neighborhood, and so I'm sitting there uh, drinking coffee, I'm reading my Bible, I'm praying, and this guy walks by, and I can't see him because he's in front of my shrub, and he says, hey, good morning, man, do you have a pair of shoes I could have? And I immediately think, not nice thoughts, because it's 7 a.m., and it's like, I'm thinking, dude, you just can't walk up to somebody's house at 7 a.m. and ask for a pair of shoes. You just don't do that. So I tell him, no, man, sorry, I can't help you. And he hangs his head, and he starts walking away. And then I see he really doesn't have a pair of shoes. He's got black socks on, and they're covered with grass. So I go up to him and say, wait a minute, what's your name? John, how'd you lose your shoes? He said, well, I was sleeping in the park last night and somebody must have stolen them. So they're gone. I said, what size do you wear, 10? Can you wear an 11? Sure. So I go inside and I pull up two pairs of shoes, get these really nice, uh, clean, but sort of cheapo shoes and these really dirty but expensive Timberland chukka boots. Now they are my spare. So I'm thinking, take the cheapos. He goes, I'll take the boots. I go, oh no, okay, you can have the boots. So by the way, John, how did you, what happened? What happened? How did you, you know, find yourself in this sort of sleeping in the park? And he said, well, COVID hit, I lost my job. I started drinking because of the pressure, the stress. I started being physically, uh, mentally abusive to my wife. She got a restraining order on me. I broke the restraining order. I wound up in jail. And now I'm just completely lost. And I said, man, I am so sorry. Can I pray for you? So I pray for him. We talk about him getting back to church, getting back to some support. And he walks away. And I'm thinking about that conversation. And I'm thinking about this passage, which I was about to preach on, that first scripture reading you heard, Acts chapter 10, and it's like, I am living in this passage. God is making this passage happen to me through John. I don't know if I helped John, but John and the Holy Spirit were helping me. That's what we see in the first scripture from the book of Acts that you heard read about a guy named Cornelius and about a guy named Peter. You're seeing how God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is always working to prepare his church. So before God sends his church into the world to be an agent of transformation, 
God transforms the church. Before the church is sent to convert anyone else, the church needs to be converted. The church needs to humble itself before the Lord and receive his work of transformation. And that's what we see in our first scripture passage. So I, if you have that, if you have that in your bulletin, I want you to turn there. I'm going to actually walk through the entire chapter, chapter 10, of the fifth book of the New Testament called the Acts of the Apostles. And we're going to look at this in five scenes. So think of this as like a, a movie or, or a play or a piece of narrative journalism. And there's going to be five separate scenes. So let's just say we got our camera and we start with scene number one in Acts chapter 10, verse 1, and it says, At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually. So let's take our camera, and now we are in Cornelius's living room. He's a successful man. He's a man of action. He's a man of violence, if he needs to be, a man of war, if he needs to be, He's a man who has achieved what we would call the American dream. He's at the top of his career. He has a family and extended relatives that respect him. He has a crew of servants that do his bidding. He would be in the top 1% to 5% of society at this time. But he's also a spiritual seeker. He has still not found what he's looking for. He's still searching for something. He's a religious man. He's close with the Jewish community, so there's something there that's intriguing him, that's drawing him, that's attracting him, but he's not a believer yet. We're going to see that. He's a, he's a decent man. He's a seeking man, but he's not a believer in Jesus, and so he, there's a door that he has to go through to receive the good news of Jesus, and he, he doesn't have the key to unopen the lock yet. So he's standing on the other side of that door, and an angel comes to him. We read in verse 4 and 5 of chapter 10. And the angel says, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial for, to, before God. Now send men, send some of your guys to Joppa, which is a city 30 miles down the coast, and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. So in other words, I know you're searching. I know you're looking. So here's what you got to do next. Grab a couple of your guys and go down 30 miles down the coast and find this Jewish fisherman named Peter and bring him and he's going to tell you about the good news that you need to know that you don't know yet. Now, if I was um, Cornelius, I might be asking, you're an angel. Why can't you just tell me? You're here. You came all the way from heaven. I, you got my attention. Just tell me what I need to know. Why do I got to go... 30 miles down the coast, find some guy, some Jewish fisherman that I've never met before, bring him up here, and so he can tell me the good news. Why involve Peter, the church? It's so slow. It's so inefficient. And here's the answer. Because we see in the New Testament, God always works through Jesus and his church. It's never just Jesus and me, Jesus and you. It's always Jesus and his church. This imperfect, flawed community filled with sinners that's slow, that sometimes doesn't get it, and yet God says it's always through Jesus and his church. So Cornelius snaps his fingers. We read in the story, he gets three guys. He says, go down the coast 30 miles and get Peter. So scene two, 
starts in verse 9. And the camera cuts now to the city of Joppa. And there on the rooftop is Peter, and he's praying on the top of the roof. And the sun is beating down his head. It's noon. It's lunchtime. He's hungry. And then we read in verses 9 through 11 that he has a vision. Verse 11, he said, it says, he saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners of the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice that said to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now we have to understand what it means to be Orthodox Jewish, to be kosher, to understand what was going on in Peter's minds here. Because he says, I've never done anything like that. I've always been kosher. I've never eaten anything that the Old Testament law told me not to eat. Now, we might think to ourselves, well, why can't he just get over that? Why can't he just eat hot dogs and, and pork and bacon? What is the big deal? Now, sometimes Christians talk as if those Old Testament laws were just so legalistic and burdensome. But, but let me tell you what they meant for a Jewish person of Peter's day. So every day you would wake up, and before you even had breakfast, before you even decided what you were going to have for breakfast, you remembered that the Lord is your Lord, and He's holy, and He's a liberator, and He delivered you from captive, and He brought you out through the Exodus, and He set you free. He is a God who sets slaves free, and He loves us, and we belong to Him. That's what those dietary laws meant. And every day before you ate anything, you would think of that. So Peter, no wonder he objects and he says, Lord, I, I just, I've never done that. In verse 17, it says he's inwardly perplexed. So the problem is not the Old Testament dietary laws. The problem is not that Peter's kosher. The problem is, is that Peter, like many Jews of his day, like many of us our day, like any of us, who belongs to anything that we care about, that we really value, that we think is really special, that we think is really unique, there's this inbuilt tendency, temptation to be, to slip into elitism. So the Jewish people had this special covenant relationship with the living God. They also had a special mission from this living God who said, you will be a light to all the nations of the earth. Through you, the Messiah will come. Through you, the law will come. Through you, my character will be made known. I have this special relationship with you. But that special relationship, that special mission sometimes gets twisted and distorted like can happen to us as well. And then we start to think, well, not only do I have a special mission and special relationship, I'm special. I'm more special than everybody else. We're more special than everybody else. And elitism slips in and snobbery. And this kills faith in the living God. And that's what happened to Peter. And that's as it happens to so many of us. So what Peter says in verse 28, now we're almost getting to the passage we heard read. He says, God is showing me that I should not call any person common or unclean. See, what happened was, not only is the food unclean, but people are unclean. And now I can't associate with those people because they're unclean. That was the problem. Not with the dietary laws. And so Peter has this vision Rise, kill, and eat. I'm getting you ready, Peter. I'm getting you ready to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, to people that you disdain, to people that you look down on. I'm preparing your heart. I'm breaking it wide open. So scene two ends the next day as the camera zooms out, we read in this story, and there's now 10 guys that are going up the coast from Joppa 
to Caesarea to Cornelius' house. So there's the three guys that Cornelius sent. There's Peter, and then there's six of his brothers, six Christian friends that are going with him. They're going up to Caesarea. Scene three opens in verse 24. Now we're back in, camera zooms back into Cornelius' living room. Verse 24. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. So his living room's full of people. There's maybe his mother is there, and maybe grandma, and maybe Uncle Ted, and maybe uh, some fellow centurion soldiers, and they're all there in the living room. And they're there because Cornelius said, I got a special guest speaker I want you all to hear. So they're probably all whispering like, who is this guy? I hear he's a Jewish fisherman. Really? A Jewish fisherman? What's he doing with Jewish fishermen? What's going on with Cornelius? What's this? this guy's? I'm worried about Cornelius. And then in verse 33, Cornelius turns to Peter and he says, okay, the floor is yours. And then I love this in verse 34, it says, uh, so Peter opened his mouth. Now, if I was in Peter's shoes, put yourself in Peter's position here. You're a fisherman. You're like blue collar as blue collar gets. And you are with the elite of the elite, the wealthy in this ornate living room with marble furniture. You're surrounded by all these rich and powerful people. What are you going to say? And he starts here. He says, truly, he starts, he doesn't really start preaching. He more starts sharing a personal testimony, a personal story. He says, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, no partiality. He says, I am learning something. I represent the church, but God is transforming me before I bring you a message of transformation. God's working on my heart. God's changing me. This little statement, I, I want us to just pause at how revolutionary this is. God shows no partiality. Now we might think, well, that's just common sense, isn't it? No, not at all. That is not the way the world has worked throughout history. That is not the way the world works today. That is not the way my son lives in Papua New Guinea. I have friends in Nigeria. The biggest problem, the biggest economic problem, the biggest barrier to economic development is corruption, is partiality, is favoring the rich over the poor. So Peter is making a revolutionary statement. He's saying, I'm learning. God shows no partiality, nothing. Nobody has the inside track. When it comes to the gospel, you rich people, you rich Roman people, you don't have the inside track. Me, as the chosen people, as a church, we don't have the inside track. God shows no partiality. It's a revolutionary statement. It undermines the driving force behind racism, colonialism, a distorted nationalism, and this was God's original plan to bring salvation to every nation. And Peter's saying, the floodgates are now opening in Jesus. The good news is being proclaimed. Verse 35, he starts his sermon. And I don't want to go, actually go into this sermon, but all I want to notice is it's really short, much shorter than my sermon. It's really simple. It's not like super deep theology. But the thing I want us to notice about it, it's not, it's revolutionary in that it is not what you need to do 
to get your life right with God. It's what God has done in and through Jesus to win you back to the heart of God the Father. It is good news. And it's good news about something not, not that you earn or achieve, but it's good news about something that you receive. So at the end, towards the end of his sermon in verse 43, he says, To him all, pe all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes, anyone from any background, no matter how many failures they've, they've made, no matter how much they've messed up their life, no matter how much they failed to live up to their own moral code, Everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Receives forgiveness. Then scene four. Now we're in scene four. The camera pans, closes up on the people that are in the room. These Gentiles, these non-Jewish people who are hearing the good news of Jesus. And we read this. While Peter was still saying these things, so he's not even done with his sermon yet, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out on even the Gentiles. People are getting saved. People are receiving forgiveness of sins. People are being filled with a new power, the Holy Spirit. People's lives are being radically reordered and altered. Cornelius has been seeking this. This is what he's been looking for. Remember when he, at the beginning, he didn't, he didn't know what he was still looking for. He didn't have the key. And now he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's being transformed by Jesus. And then there's just this, this beautiful little thing at the end of this, this, this whole story in verse 48. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then there's this little kind of throwaway sentence that you might not notice. It says, and then they asked him to remain for some days. I love that. So here are Jews and Gentiles that in the world at that time had nothing to do with each other, who despised each other, who held each other in disdain, who had prejudices against each other, that went back for centuries, that had no dealings with each other, and they stayed together in the same house for many days, eating and feasting and playing music and singing, learning each other's dances, who knows? But they stayed for many days. I love that. The gospel is not only breaking down walls between God and human beings, but between human beings and human beings. People from different racial and ethnic and tribal groups. People from different socioeconomic strata and bringing them together. That's scene four. Now let me just say scene five. Starts like this. It starts way out. And you have maybe in the cosmos somewhere. And it starts zooming in, and zooming in, zooming in, zooming in on another city and another neighborhood. And you suddenly realize, wait a minute, that's my city. That's Minneapolis. Wait a minute, that's my neighborhood. That's my house. That's me. It's zooming in on me. And suddenly you realize the Bible is not just a story that was written 2,000 years ago about Peter and a centurion named Cornelius, but it's written for us. It's written for you. And you realize you are drawn in to the world of the Bible. Like I was drawn in when I met John on my front porch. You are drawn in. And you, the Lord begins to speak to you. And he asks you this question. 
Are you open to me working through you? See, I just know in my own life, it's just so easy for my heart to get hard, to get closed, to get like a clenched fist, to get angry, to get outraged, to get cynical, to get stoical, where I don't no longer feel the hurt and the pain of the world. It's so easy to get that. We're so inundated with information, we're so inundated with outrages that we don't, our hearts become hard. And the Lord, I think through this text, he wants to ask us, he wants to ask you, Restoration Anglican Church, he wants to ask you individually, just where you're sitting. Lord, I, I wants you to open your heart and just to, to pray, and, and maybe at some point in the service, you'll just pray a very simple prayer. Lord, open my heart. I repent that sometimes it's hard and closed and bitter and cynical or prejudiced or whatever. Open my heart and let me live before you with a holy expectancy that you may call me, that you may bring someone into my life. And maybe he's brought somebody into your life already that you're just not paying attention to. Open your heart to the Lord and just say, Lord, let me live with that holy expectancy to be your church, to be your person. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.